Hi there, in this podcast, Ayamati and I begin to study Shohaku Okamura's commentary on chapter 14 of Dogen's magnum opus, Shobogenzo. The chapter is called The Mountains and Water Sutra, or Sansuikyo. After contextualizing the chapter itself and Okamura's commentary, we begin to touch on some of its principal themes including the idea of the always incompleteness of practice and the condition of no knowing as a creative relation with experience. We hope you enjoy this podcast. So I wonder if we could just sort of take a step back and just start a little bit from the beginning, if you like, uh, in looking at this. Um, So... We've got a chapter from the Shoba Genzo. Uh, in my version of the Shoba Genzo, it's actually, I think it's chapter nine. Just check over that. So I've got this big kind of four volume edition uh, of the Shoba Genzo. And uh, sorry, it's actually chapter 14, actually, in my edition um, of the first volume, uh, just, just so that you know. Um, and uh, Okumura has obviously concluded that this particular chapter of the Shoba Genzo, or Genzo, if I may say, uh, is particularly important. Um, and previously, we've looked at his commentary on Genjo Koan, which is another chapter from the Shoba Genzo, which many people think is like the key to all of it, or a kind of synthesis or summary of all of it. Uh, So we we looked at that previously and Okamura has his commentary on that. And the other, as far as I've been able to determine, the other main chapter of the Shobogenzo on which he's offered commentary is this chapter that we're looking at and Sansuikyo, uh, which is the Mountains and Waters Sutra. So it seems interesting to me in itself that he's concluded that this particular chapter merits a lot of attention, uh, attention to the point of actually having written a whole commentary on it. And actually, I did a little bit, a bit of digging around uh, before today's meeting to try and see uh, what other chapters um, have commentaries, if you like, at least in, in English. Um, and the main other chapter that I discovered that has a commentary on it is uh, Bendawa, uh, mm-hmm. which um, has a couple of commentaries at least. Um, and there was one more that I found uh, on which there's a commentary. I, I had had the idea that there are like hundreds and hundreds of commentaries on, on Dogen in English, but there actually aren't hundreds. I, I think there are there are commentaries on about maybe four or five chapters from the Shobo Genzo. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the material that's out there is very academic, uh, or a lot of it is the same. Uh, so uh, different translations of Shobo Genzo, different translations of other texts by Dogen, uh, and quite a lot of repetition in that kind of way. Um, so I, I guess I'm just saying that as a way of trying to sort of contextualize a bit this commentary and work out uh well why he did it you know why it's there uh, and how it fits in with other things 
I don't know whether you've got any more general thoughts on that. Well, there, there's one other, um, there's one other um, writing that he he mentions in this in this, and almost uh, does a tangential commentary on on Uji, which yeah. is one of the most intriguing of the of the writings. And uh, he he points out that Uji was written at a um, well, the, almost the same time, within a, you know, as as this Sansuikyo, uh, <clears throat> and so it's um, he he looks at some of the comments and some of what Dogen says in Sansuikyo in the light of what he says in in Uji. Um, I was struck repeatedly as I was reading this first chapter, I guess, of, of uh, at how much. Um, and how many similarities there were, there were with the spirit of what we've been looking at in Shinran is really under underlining um, your insight that you've had for quite some time that Dogen and Shinran really are not that far apart in in some very important ways, and and one of the um, <clears throat> one of the one of the ways in which one of the first passages where he said something that struck me as if it could have just come right out of Shinran in a way, was when he, it was in the section that it's, it's called the True Dharma Eye, and uh, which which is Shobogen, you know, it, I, I've just been kind of amazed at once that's been pointed out how, what a traditional expression that is in, in, uh, in, um, in Zen how often one encounters this expression, Shobogen. But he he says in a passage that in my edition is on page 47. I don't know if our pagination is is the same, but I I have it on Kindle and I think Kindle tries to be true to the pagination of a printed version. But on page 47, he says, viewing things with the true Dharma eye and viewing things with our karmic consciousness are very different. So this is sort of like our karmic, karmic consciousness is, is the um, manovijnana in, in the Yogacara context. It's the um, that aspect of um, consciousness where we appropriate things and say, this is me, this is mine. Um, so he says, viewing things with the true dharma and viewing things with our karmic consciousness are very different. As bodhisattvas, we need to see things with the true dharma eye. Still, we're not completely free from our karmic consciousness. We have to live out our karma. Precisely speaking, our karmic condition is the only device we can use to practice. And I, I found that really really a very provocative notion that the um in, in maybe in contrast to what Shinran says I mean for, for Shinran um the the failing of the reason that we fail in in practice is is because it's a it's an ego driven um project and 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 so the the way around that is to um acknowledge that it's never going to work and to accept the um the other power um whereas in this it seems to be that what we do with our karmic condition karmically conditioned 
mind, with our ego, is come to realize precisely that we're doing things through our karmically limited or karmically conditioned ego. And, and to be fully aware of that, as fully aware as it's possible to be. And um, he, he goes on to say in, in, a, in a further passage, talks about Sawaki uh, Roshi said that in our Zazen, we realize that we're no good. <laughs> That's, that sounds very much like Shrenran. We're no good is the reality of our life. We're conditioned and self-centered. Whatever we try, whatever I try to do, even for the Dharma, is influenced by my desire and, and, and preference. So it's it's um, there's certainly a, a, a great deal of commonality with, with Shinran in, in that. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck by that as well, um, Diamati, and I actually uh, I've underlined we are no good, um, which, you know, on the one hand, you could think seems a bit discouraging uh, and maybe a bit negative, if you like, uh, about oneself, you know, psychologically speaking. Uh, but in the way that we're talking about, it seems to me to link up to being convicted um, in the way that we talked about earlier in uh, Quakerism. And then this sort of deep insight, if you like, into our own samskaras, our own kleshas, if you like. Uh, and in that, there's some kind of liberation process. Um, but also, um, he goes on to talk about repentance, uh, the practice of re repentance. And he says that repentance does not mean saying, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Uh, repentance is really deeply awakening to how much we are influenced by the seventh consciousness. It, so that's the klishta mana vijnana, would it be? Um, the seventh yes. consciousness in, in Yogacara. And right. to see this, to see this is the true Dharma eye. Right. So that's interesting, isn't it? It is, yeah. Uh, and, and I don't remember whether it's here or someplace else where he, he says um, that, you know, we may be bodhisattvas, but we're very childish bodhisattvas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he says we're, we're still pretty immature bodhisattvas, he says. Pretty yeah. immature, okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, so to me, it, again, it's sort of underlining some kind of paradoxical awareness or par paradoxical awakening, awakening of awareness that on the one hand, we are contacting with, uh, with something that seems beyond us, if you like, uh, transcendent, but that very process also involves a greater sensibility. Uh, to our own karmic limitedness, you know, our own uh, our own tendency to fall beneath our ideals constantly mm -hmm. and over again. Um, and uh, I, I don't know why I find the word repentance quite attractive, really, because I suppose repentance seems to imply, well, it, it obviously implies an awareness of one's limitations and failings. And I would suggest a humility alongside that. Uh, and possibly a desire to let go of those things, but an awareness that maybe that's not so easy. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it, it isn't so easy to just think, oh, yeah, okay, I've realized my failings and I'm never going to do that again. Uh, you know, I'll just drop all of that. Because um, we know that we're not like that. We know that we're uh, habitual beings, samskaric beings, or uh, to use the language here where, where, where our perception or our 
experience that the world is distorted by our karmic past, right? That's the Krishna Vijnana. And it's not easy to just drop that, um, uh, but we can become more and more aware of it. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that what he's saying is that becoming more and more aware of it uh, and not just maybe just buying into it, perhaps, uh, is uh, is the true Dharma eye, what's being involved in the true Dharma eye. Yeah, yeah, it, it is an, it is an interesting um, an interesting phenomenon, you know, to 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 realize that you've fallen short, um, and and to realize that you know to to use the the uh, Christian term to sin, which which uh, I've heard in a number of times, is a translation of a Greek expression that means to to miss the target, to miss to miss the mark. Oh, and um, um, there was there was a um, a Jesuit that, that Judy worked with for a long time, who was who was a Zen recognizes a Zen teacher, Father Thomas Hand, and um, he 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 would often say, when you sin, it means that you've fallen off the path, and when you fall off the path, you just get back on the path, <laughs> you know, and 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 realizing as you do that, that you'll probably stray from the path again, but you, you, you still um, also may tell yourself that when that happens, you'll just get back on the path. So, so it's not sort of beating yourself up that you've strayed off the path. And it's, it's not also just kind of resigning yourself saying, oh, well, I guess, I guess I'm just, you know, somebody who falls off the path. Because there's always this getting back on the path, um, and and I guess that's part of what's what's involved in in repentance, repentance, realizing that that you have this nature, um, that part of your nature is is that you you uh, make mistakes. Um, he links this up to the um, the Bodhisattva vow, which I think is really quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, and he says that vow and repentance are always together. Right. Without taking a vow, there is no way we can repent. Right. Repentance is a kind of an awakening to the incompleteness of our practice of vow, of the Bodhisattva vow. Right. It's really interesting that, that you can only, it's almost like you can only wake up to your own uh, limits or your own uh being convicted or what have you if you're in relation to an ideal or if you've committed yourself to a higher ideal because without that doesn't even make any sense does it um why what would you repent for um there's nothing to repent because you've got no higher standard or you've got no higher source of value right you know, I, I, I locked in, in the uh, the section that's called Each Moment Has Exhaustive Virtue, where he talks about the <clears throat> the four bodhisattva vows that are found in um, Tendai. Um, you know, beings are numberless. I, I vow to save them. Um, and, and, and he says about that, if beings are numberless, there's no way that we can save them all. If delusions are inexhaustible, there's no way to end them. If teachings, if the Dharma gates are boundless, we can't master them. If awakening 
if the Buddha way is unsurpassable, we can never attain it. And so he says, you know, a sensible person would never take vows to do that. Only only a fool would take such, <laughs> such vows. And then he says, it's very clear. When we take these vows, we vow to do something we cannot complete. A clever person cannot take such a vow. Only a stupid one can. The contradiction is important. It shows shows us the incompleteness of our practice. No matter how hard we practice, no matter how good we do, still our practice is incomplete. Yeah, that, that seems to me an ex a very very important. Um, I mean, <clears throat> you know, it's another one of those examples of if you know you you might say well. I mean, these are chanted every day in a Zen context. You, you might say, well, I'm just not going to, to recite those vows because I can't possibly fulfill them. But you do it anyway. <laughs> and you mean it. I mean, you really mean it. Um, yeah, that's uh, absolutely amazing. And um, to me, it kind of links up with the idea that uh, the vow, it's like we participate in the vow. Uh, rather than we personally fulfill the vow. Um, I'm linking this to some of uh, Bhante's ways of talking about the Bodhisattva ideal and the Bodhicitta and the Bodhisattva vow. Mm -hmm. And he talks in terms of the Triratna Buddhist order being the Bodhisattva. And so each individual member, rather than taking the vow as an individual, participates in the vow through the, the collective practice, through, through the order itself. Uh, because, as he clearly says here, uh, it's impossible. Uh, we, we could never do all of this. Even the whole order can never do all of this either, uh, clearly. That's also true. Um, but what I'm trying to draw out more is this idea of participating in it rather than accomplishing it. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, th I, think that's a <clears throat> I think that's a very important um Way, way to talk about it, too, that we participated in it, um, is something that you brought out um, Tuesday in the, in, the, in the book launch. And it's yet another way in which I think there's quite a lot of common ground with, with Shinran. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of what you've just read out or we're, we're reading here, um, just for changing different terms, could so easily uh, be linked, I think, or, or understood in, in terms of Shinran's idea. And just to maybe repeat a bit more what we were saying earlier, uh, he's talking about vow and repentance being two sides of the same coin. Um, so to me, the vow part relates to perhaps other power. Um, uh, uh, well, in, in, certainly in Shinran's um, uh, language, the vow is other power. Uh, it's not us that makes the vow. Uh, we haven't made a vow. A mm. mean made the vow, right? Which mm. he fulfilled and we can somehow uh, benefit from. Uh, but then in benefiting from that or in coming to relationship with that vow, there's an awakening to our own limitedness. Uh, and what um, Okamura is emphasizing in that uh, is that that provokes a kind of repentance um, and it would be interesting to explore more deeply how he understands repentance um, mm -hmm. but maybe it relates a bit to what Pratnaguna was talking about the change of heart if you like um, I certainly see in repentance 
humility uh, uh, and a desire not to harm others, a desire not to act badly again. But I suspect that we must have to recognize that we will, mm -hmm. uh, that it, you know, we, we may repent, but that doesn't mean that we're never going to act below our highest standards again. It seems almost inevitable that we will, uh, because delusions are inexhaustible. Uh, which, uh, I mean, I, it may be that in that delusions are in, inexhaustible, it's talking about other people. But I, I kind of think delusions are inexhaustible within oneself as well, not just others. Uh, right. Pro pro probably at least partly because ultimately we're not separate from others. So the idea that, you know, we're, we're a separate self with our delusions that are different or separated from the delusions of others, I don't know that that's what it is to be a human being, you know, we're interconnected and therefore our delusions are not completely separate from the delusions of others. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think I can certainly relate to the idea of inexhaustible delusions for sure. And, and to me, I think this goes back a little bit to um, Genjo Cohen, actually, the commentary that we saw there. And there's some metaphors there uh, about how as you awaken, you become more aware of how deluded you really are. Uh, and that just carries, that process just carries on, if you like. There's a, a fuller and fuller uh, insight into one's own uh, delusion, you know, which is yeah. the opposite of how sometimes those things are presented. So it's not a steady march towards perfection, if you like. Mm. Yeah, the, in... in uh... <clears throat> looking to see if I can, when, when, when he talks about, when Okumura talks about practice, <clears throat> again, it's, um, if you were using Shinran's language, practice is free from, um, from calculation, or from Hakarai, you know, it's, it's, it's not that practice is something that you do in order to, it's not instrumental, it's nothing that you're doing in order to get somewhere, but the practice itself. They use the language of manifestation. Um, is that Genjo? Uh, it may, it, yeah, I think it probably is, isn't it? I think I think there's. Yeah. I think it's very. Yeah, it's, that's one way of reading Genjo. Yeah. Right. And and um, and Sasaki Roshi used to use that term all the time i mean it was it was um probably one of the most commonly used expressions for him was is that um you know just focus on manifesting focus on manifesting and no no matter what what you're doing you know it's um if you if you're you know eating or you're you're washing the dishes or you're sitting in zazen or you're talking to someone manifest to the best of your ability, and it must be that same expression. It, 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 I always wondered where that idea came from, but I think it was really only in, in reading Okamura, this particular chapter, that it occurred to me that um, Sasaki was probably using very traditional Zen language that someone along the way translated. You know, he always spoke in Japanese. And so, someone, you know, it probably became customary for people to to use that Japanese expression and to translate it as manifestation. 
Um, so I'd actually like to, to take a, a step back. I think you've actually read further on than me. Um, and so the things that I picked up on are, are quite early on in the uh, first chapter. Okay. And I'm quite struck by the idea of fui, uh, or not understanding. It's translated as not understanding. Um, and Okamura mentions that it's a concept that Dogen brings in in various different um, chapters of the Shogogenzo. And among other things, he actually, in, uh, in a footnote, makes a reference to a chapter that's found in Shogogenzu Ken, Kenbutsu, which mm -hmm. is actually a commentary on 300 koans. Um, I, I don't have that, but I have the um, I have the note, and the note is from case 59, and it's a dialogue that happens between Huineng, interestingly, uh, and a monk, uh, and it goes like this. A monk asked, who attained the meaning of Huang Mei, uh, the fifth ancestor? Huineng said, those who understand the Buddha Dharma attained it. The monk asked, did you attain it, master? Huineng said, no, I did not attain it. The monk asked, why didn't you attain it? Huineng said, I don't understand the Buddha Dharma. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of really like that. Um, that really resonated with me. Um, and again, to, me, to my mind, resonates with, with a sort of Shin perspective, which is one of a recognition of incompleteness, I guess, or recognition of the ways in which we, we don't grasp uh, fully uh, what is of ultimate importance mm -hmm. and we're aware of that. Uh, and that, that seems to be what Hui Neng is saying there. You know, he, he's, he's trying to uh, be honest or, or congruent uh, with the, the limits of his own understanding. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems to speak against certain ideas about Buddhism of perfection or grasping everything. Uh, but it seems to me to be existentially quite convincing. And just to go a little bit further, it would seem to me that often we think that, that the Buddhist path is a path towards understanding. Uh, and at some point, we will understand whatever it is that is supposed to be trying to teach us. But what uh, it seems to me that Dogen is trying to invite us towards is, it is into a state of non-understanding. Uh, where we don't understand, where we don't understand everything. And I think if we're in that uh, space or that attitude, then that puts us in an attitude of openness and receptivity rather than an attitude of like grasping and um, uh, sort of incorporating things into ourselves. So to my mind, there's something very, very interesting in this idea of opening up to non-understanding. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about that? You know, it's it's related in a, in a way to um, to recognizing that one doesn't really not only does not one have does one not have understanding, but one doesn't have even the motivation. Um, and and I was <clears throat> I've I've mentioned before a book by Michael McGee, who I think it used to be uh, Vipassi, <clears throat> and and uh, <clears throat> transformation of mind in which he 
talks about crossing a busy street in some city and in the um, he passes a, a, a woman who is asking, you know, a, a, a person who's obviously homeless, who's asking for some kind of alms. And, and uh, he just kind of turns away, turns his head away and walks across the street and then has to face the fact that he did not want to help that person, you know, and, and what, a, what a painful recognition it is that um, he's taken all of this bodhisattva. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't put it in Buddha's terms, but if, if he were to put it in Buddha's terms, it would, I've taken this bodhisattva vow, and here was an opportunity to manifest that, to participate in that vow, and I just didn't want to do it. I willfully walked away from that opportunity. That uh, sounds like a, a very Levinasian insight, if I may say, you know, <laughs> uh, the, the face of the other coming over one and, uh, well, in this case, ignoring it, I guess, uh, which, right, we, right. which we often do, uh, rather than responding to it. But, um, yeah, it, it very much uh, reminds me of um, Levinas's uh, idea of when someone someone presents themselves to us if you like they make a claim on us uh, and we can't we can't pretend that that hasn't happened yeah and and, and 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 you know if you if you look at your own mentality on those occasions um where you've kind of turned away from an opportunity to to help someone in need um I mean, I'm assuming that you've done that maybe once or, or twice in your life. <laughs> so you recognize, you look at you look at your own your own mentality, and and then you realize, well, I I was, I was on my way to, um, you know, I was I was, on my way to uh, to a restaurant. I was hungry, and so I couldn't be, I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> I was on, on my way to cultivate compassion, and so I couldn't. Right. <laughs> I couldn't stop to help the person. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I actually cite a similar uh, example in uh, in my book on the Four Noble Truths, and where I'm talking about um, dukkha. And uh, it was an example. I mean, I could have thought of a hundred, but one of them. It was a particular moment when I was in Mexico City. Uh, walking towards the metro uh, and I crossed a bridge, uh, one of those bridges that go over the road, you know, pedestrian bridge. And I reached the end of the bridge and I was just about to go down the steps. And there was this old lady who was clearly asking for money. And she was sort of gesturing with like a syringe uh, uh, towards people. Uh, and there was a lot of people. So I will say that. And I just was kind of carried down, if you like, with the flow of people uh, down the other side because it was a very busy kind of space next to a metro stop. And I was sort of trying to make sense of, if you like, what had happened and, and what was going on there. And I was guessing that she needed money for some kind of medication. I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe some, uh, some illness that she had or something, she needed money to buy the, buy the medication. But all too quickly, I was just sort of swept along and I didn't respond. And, and obviously even part of me was thinking, well, is it really true? And all of that. Mm -hmm. And then quite uncomfortable situations to find oneself in. And it's not 
always easy to know what the best thing to do is. Um, yeah. Equally, another thing that happens a lot, particularly in Mexico City, uh, happens here in Cuernavaca as well, that you're at a restaurant, and particularly if it's a restaurant that has outside space, within half an hour, a number of people will approach you asking for money for different reasons. Maybe they're, they're selling sweets that they want you to buy. Maybe they'll come and sing a little song that often is terrible. Uh, and and they'll, they'll collect money. And it, it's terrible and it's so loud that you can't talk to the person that you're sit, sat opposite. And then they come around asking, <laughs> asking you to give money. Uh, uh, so that happens as well. Or sometimes it's just people actually begging for money. And, and sometimes they'll have a story about that they need it for some reason, some medical reason or what have you. And it's very, very difficult to know what to, to make of it all. Uh, and equally, there is a lot of it. So I'm not sure that it's always even practicable to respond to all of them. Um, and uh, But that's that's the reality, if you like, that, that, that faces us. Um, yeah. Quite tricky. Yeah. I, 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 I recall being with... Uh, Subuti in um, in Myanmar, and uh, we went to we were taken to a temple. We had a guide who took us everywhere, and a driver, you know, a very you know luxurious sort of setting. And he took us to this lovely little temple, and and um, <clears throat> we went inside. And as we often did when we went to these temples, we meditated for some period of time. Came out. We had been in there long enough that some person had um, come and laid out on the ground about 25 very nice drawings um, of bodhisattvas and, and Buddhas. And um, he, he had obviously laid them out in the hopes that we would buy one. And <laughs> both of us just kind of looked at them and and just walked on. We didn't 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 buy buy one, and it was only a few minutes later. I mean, we're already in the car and going somewhere else. That I, it just occurred to me, this person went to all that trouble to you know to make a few um, you know probably the equivalent of fifty cents that would have meant something to him, and I guess one of the thoughts in my mind was. Well, I don't really have any room in my suitcase, you know, <laughs> for for one of these drawings, and and so I just didn't, you know, I just I I felt so shabby as, as just walking, you know, walking past this person who had gone to all that trouble. It still bothers me to this day, like twenty years later, twenty more than twenty years later. Oh, yeah. You should come to Mexico, Diamati, because you'd experience the same thing perhaps hundred times a day. Uh, <laughs> right. um, so yeah, it's hard, isn't it? You know, for instance, here you what you get is you get people who go to the effort to paint themselves silver uh, or gold, which and I think that the paint that they use or the material that they use is not very healthy uh, for them, uh, and then they go to like a crossroads somewhere. And then they do some juggling uh, like that, you know, when the, so when the red light comes on, uh, they do, they juggle for you. And then they go and ask for money from the cars that are still 
behind the, the red traffic light. Um, and uh, yeah, so you've got a choice whether to give or not give in those circumstances.